0: Good morning. Uh, today is the first Sunday of Advent. as has already been mentioned, and um, there's a, a handout in your bulletin, I, I hope, that has some uh, readings and prayers for you. Thank you, Esther. Um, this is so that we can all sort of together over the next four weeks be tracking through this season. It's a way to remind uh, each of us that Advent is not Christmas. Advent comes before Christmas. Christmas is the celebration. It's the feast. It's the party. Uh, Advent is a time of preparation, and I'll talk more about that today. But please take that insert, stick it in your Bible, and, um, and if you could, there's a, a daily uh, Bible readings uh, in there, and that will help you track during this season of anticipation and longing as well as, uh, as lament. Um, so please do take advantage uh, of that. Advent means coming, and it's a season that reminds us of the time when God's people were awaiting the coming of the Messiah. The book of Ezekiel was written during that time, the passage, the the long passage that you heard read this morning by by Kathy, by Kalia, and by Maggie, uh, comes out of a time of great Longing and anticipation. Babylon had conquered Judah. Ezekiel the prophet and many of his contemporaries had been carried off into exile into a foreign land. They had recently received word that the temple back in Jerusalem, the very source of their identity and purpose as a people, had finally been destroyed. Advent is the season that reminds us of the longing and the lament that these people felt as they prayed for God's Messiah to come. So in that way, Advent points us back. But Advent also points us forward. Those of us here this morning who would consider ourselves Christians, people who have submitted to Jesus, we look forward to the Messiah's return. Now unlike the Jewish exiles, this Advent season for us leads to a particular celebration. Each week we'll light a different candle until Christmas when the Christ candle in the center is lit and we celebrate the incarnation, the gift of God's Son in such a surprising manner. So that is different for us. We have a celebration ahead of us. But we share with those ancient exiles a a bitter awareness that life is far from what it should be. We share with them the hope that the Messiah will come and make all things right. When Michael Brown an unarmed, 18-year-old, college-bound African-American man with no criminal record was gunned down by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri earlier this year, we are reminded that things are not how they should be. When that young man's body was left in the middle of the street, four hours in the August afternoon sun, we are reminded that things are not right. When law enforcement responded to the early protests with tear gas and military grade weaponry, we are reminded that things are not how they should be. When a town like Ferguson, can be 67% African American, and yet 93% of the arrests made by the mostly white police force are of the town's black citizens. We know that things are not right. When Michael Brown's personal life and motives are picked apart by a media looking for some reason to justify his killing, we know that things are not right. When the same state of Missouri that ruled against the enslaved Dred Scott's legal suit, challenging his own enslavement in 1847, when that same state releases videos showing Michael Brown stealing a few cigarettes as a justification for his death, we know that things are not right. When a grand jury meets for 3 months under the direction of a county prosecutor with close ties to the police department a county prosecutor with a history of racial bias and when this grand jury decides not to indict the police officer who killed Michael Brown we know that things are not right In this country, when a black man is 21 times more likely to be killed by a police officer than a white man, we know that things are not right. When so many American citizens question the innocence and the motives of those same slain men while conveniently overlooking our own nation's pathological robberies, we took the First Nations land before taking their lives. We stole black bodies from Africa and placed them within a white supremacist system of cotton fields and Jim Crow laws and systemically designed ghettos and money-making prisons. Our towns and our tax systems benefit from undocumented brown bodies who do the work we're unwilling to do for wages we would be offended by. Something is not right. We are an Advent people. A people of longing and lament. Lament for how things are. Longing for how one day, they will be. Uh, this morning, I'm going to invite some members of our church to share with you briefly their lament and their longing. Earlier this week, I emailed them and I would ask if they would be willing to let us in to their own experience and response to the particular reality of Ferguson as well The many realities it represents. So we get to hear from them particularly, and they're going to invite us to corporately respond in lament and prayer. After we hear each of these short testimonies, a psalm will come up on the screen. Each of these psalms were written during this time of exile. Each of these psalms come from a time of lament. Lament. And suffering and hardship. And so, the words of these psalms will be our words this morning as we respond to how things are and long for how things one day will be. So, I'm going to invite uh, these eight folks to come up now. Again, as uh, they share, I invite you to listen closely to their specific experience and reflection when each one of them is done they'll uh, pass the mic and when they do your response will come up on the screen and i'll invite uh, all of us together to respond Uh, so again consider this uh, a sacred space i've asked these uh, members to share honestly I've asked them to not censor themselves. Um, So allow this to be a sacred space, hear their hearts, and then we'll respond together.
1: On Monday, when I heard from Ferguson, I felt sick to my stomach. Not in a metaphorical kind of way, I truly felt my stomach churn. Then I wanted to cry, and I did. And then my cry gave way, way to a surge of rage. See, I have been stirring anger and frustration and disappointment for the last few weeks. A couple of weeks ago, Mexico's Attorney General gave a press conference much like Mondays in Ferguson. And it also brought in me the same reaction. We were told that 43 students, who were the poorest of the poor, that went missing on September 26th, they were dead. The police detained them, turned them to a drug cartel to execute them to burn their bodies and throw their ashes into a river. I heard this news, and I bawled. And the truth is that Yama can say, I'm tired. I'm tired of injustice. I'm tired of living in fear, fearing for the lives of those I love here and also in Mexico. I'm tired of this broken world. I'm tired of hearing that one is overreacting, that he, they, got what they deserved. I'm tired of being told by the powers that be that it is all a product of our collective imagination rather than of a system that I cannot seem to be able to change. I'm tired of having to tell those in power to speak for me because otherwise I will not be heard. I'm tired of trying to convince others of the worth of people like me, of people of color, and of my country's poor. I'm tired of the silence of the church and of being told that everything will be made right someday. I'm tired of hearing that we can pray injustice away. The blood of our brothers is crying out to us from the ground, and I cry, Thy kingdom come on earth, Lord, today.
2: uh monday night when i was checking the internet for the verdict and i got it it was uh and i think david sent this out in the email to the church it wasn't necessarily surprising uh to see that that was the decision reached um and when i was looking at the protests or you know uh, following the news one thing that really caught my attention was the tagline um black lives matter and uh kind of wondering how we got to a point where that's what we needed to be telling people. Um, Why is that not something, you know, why is that a message that needs to be said? Uh, And you think about it, and what happened in Ferguson isn't really the start of that message needing to be told to a lot of people. Um, As a teacher who has only been teaching for three years in Chicago, uh, in predominantly uh, African American, uh, low-income public schools, uh, you see that... We live in a culture where we say black lives don't matter. Um, At the first school I was at, I mean, it's systematically just built in so that uh, it's just built wrong. Um, And there's nothing that we as a city or we as uh, educators are uh, pausing and putting things on hold to make sure that uh, these people and uh, the students that go to this school uh, are not being left behind. And, uh, what I realized was as I go back to school, you know, this happened right as break started and I go back to school on Monday. Um, it honestly is, if it's something that I talk to my students about, it's something they're going to be, uh, have talked about over break and of course be affected by, but it's not going to be anything new to them, unfortunately, in terms of, uh, how is it that they've been treated uh, because of the color of their skin, because of their income, uh, their family's income. And so, uh. When um, in a church context, I think when we think about it, I think a lot, I think the timing of Jonah was really nice because we have this Assyrian empire who was kind of known for all the injustices and wrong that it did. And uh, sometimes I feel like Jonah, where I want to flee when being called to uh, face and preach against those things. But I think we see from Jonah's story that uh, God still uh, desires for justice to be reached and he desires for the assyrians to to come to know him, so uh, wherever we're at and wherever God has placed us, and I think for me uh, in my school it's to not run away and it's to uh, go there and um, like Edith was saying with with god's kingdom it's uh to to be his light at the school that I'm at.
3: This is very hard for me because I've lived through so much of this. I, I, you know, I don't know what to say about it, really, in two minutes. But I'm going to try. I was praying with the girls, um, regular evening prayer. When Michelle called back and said they could, they, they, uh, the verdict. I can't even say acquitted, Uh, (laughs) and I had to just kind of. Compose myself. Um, I was angry. I was so, so sad. I've seen moms. I've, I've, I've been in communities where moms lost their children. Uh, up until the last 10 years, maybe five, 10 years, my children had lost more of their friends than I had. And I was just so angry. I was able to compose myself to pray for the family, for, for, for God to, to just shore them up, and for all the other families that have lost children. My children just don't matter. Our lives don't matter. And it's really hard for me to accept the fact that systematically what we're looking at for me is uh, another iteration of genocide in another country, that's what we would be talking about. We would be talking about genocide. In this country, it's, oh, the police, uh, you know, have authority too. Uh, oh, they need more training, oh, they, it's genocide. It's planned, it's been well planned, and it continues to be planned. And unless we as a people come together, it, as, as people who believe in God and who believe in the goodness of God, can come together and begin to just be honest about what race is in this country and how it ties to economy and how it ties to power and wealth and how it ties to everything that we are not. Um, I just, I don't know when it ends. I, you know, I, I, I drank colored water. I was on the back of the bus. I... I came through that time when uh, it looked like things were getting better in the civil rights movement. And I've seen the genocide. I've seen drugs drop in L.A. to get rid of the more militant groups that were trying to organize community, like the Panthers, who actually had education and free breakfasts for children in the community. You know, I've I've seen drugs just blatantly ignored in communities of color. I've seen... Working with these children, I, you know, I talk to kids and it's like, oh, the drug, you know, the gunman, the man comes with a truck of guns for $50 and we can get one. And they can get $50 standing on the corner easily. It's time. And, and because the community is a part of a body that has as its agenda social justice and racial reconciliation, I'm just calling on a really, really new structure that says we need to have some talks and some real open discussion about action. It's time for a new movement. It's time for, it's, it's time for somebody, some of us, who understand to get out and do this work. And it's going to be hard work. It's going to be nasty work. It's going to be sad work. I've done the work, and I want to do it again. I'm willing to do it again now. We
4: have
5: to. Um, I have to qualify this by saying that I, I don't like Oprah Winfrey. I think she might be the antichrist, or at least one of them. Um, but she said something about 20 years ago to one of her guests who was dealing with a husband or a boyfriend that was cheating or abusive or something. She said, honey, when a man tells you who he is, you need to believe him. And the white man, the the police, the government, the the justice system, told us a long time ago who they were. And we have to believe them. And and I, as a black man, cannot be angry every time the white man is who he said he was. Or else I will live angry and I will not do that. There's nothing abundant or salvific, or as my pastor used to say, or redemptive about an angry life, and so I cannot be angry. My disappointment in this situation was more toward my people, the black people, and their response to it, because I I feel like we are on our third generation of looting and burning, and, and that has not solved the problem, it hasn't. Burning our own things has not solved the problem. Destroying our own property Hurting our people, killing our children has not solved our problem. Those things, the destruction, the war, the looting, the stealing, the burning, those are our white man's tools. And and as they say, the the master's tools will never destroy or dismantle the master's house. And so I'm looking for for my people to come up with a new response. Um, One of the only things that I feel that that white men have given to people of color, anywhere that they've been has been Jesus. Um, they have, in their colonial exploits, brought Christianity to all these different nations and they gave that to, to the slaves. And from the moment that, um, that the white men gave Christianity to the, to the slaves, it, it then became the slaves' job to, to show them how it's actually done. To show them what turning of their cheek looks like. To show them what loving your enemy looks like. To show them what suffering and dying and never saying a mumbling word looks like. And, And so I'm looking for my people to do that. To see Christ's example. When Jesus was arrested and killed and tried, he was arrested and killed and tried because there were individuals who were wrong and there were Courts who were wrong, and there were governments who were wrong, and there were crowds who were wrong. And in this case, and in so many of these cases, there are all of these things, these structures who were wrong. And Jesus died not as a victim, not as a martyr, but he died as a sacrifice so that the individuals and the courts... And the governments and the crowds could be redeemed and so that they could be reconciled to God. And so they could be presented before the God of justice, before the God who judges rightly and perfectly. So they could be presented before him faultless, so that they could have new life and so that they could have eternal life and I am looking for my people to stand up and and be Christians, and I'm looking for them to believe that the white man is who he says he is and not to believe that black people are who the white men say that they are because this tendency to punish ourselves when they are wrong is just a manifestation of self-hatred. It's just a manifestation of us believing that we deserve to be beaten. We deserve to have our things stolen when they are wrong, and that is not the case at all.
4: When I heard the news from Ferguson, like many, um, I was surrounded by a feel of just unsurprise. Not even apathy, but just being in a state of not being surprised. I drowned in the cries of systemic and racial injustice the connotative images of the hood, the store, the bruise, the cap, and the gown, the questions around motive, self-defense, hands up, and curbside rules. And amidst these, my eyes blurred, witnessing the desperation of a people to hold onto a hope that knows justice. And I know of our need for a hope that knows justice. When I heard the news from Ferguson, like many of us in this room who work with youth, who work in schools, I saw the faces of a lot of my students, past and present, as soon as I will never have the fortune to cross paths with. And I pray that they would know that their voice continues to matter, not matters now, but continues to matter in spite of indictments, media, and history. So I prayed for Kaje, and Kennessy, and Jacoby, and Deontay, and Peaches, and Darylin, for Cameron, and Jesse, and Andrew, and John and Harold. And you all can add name after name for our young black youth. I pray for a hope that knows justice and a justice that knows hope.
6: Hello, my name is uh, Carlos. My first feelings and emotions around the verdict is um, I wasn't surprised. Um, And um, I mean, I've, My experience is I've been in the Marines and I've had lots of things happen in my family, so I have this ability to tune things out or to deal with things. But I I do recall waking up the next morning and just feeling this heaviness. Um, And then I just started to remember all the stuff, all the car stops to check my car, although I'm not doing anything wrong. All the people slowly looking at me when I go into a store. My mom, her first job when she came to Memphis, was at a restaurant, and she was able to work in the front because she was a lighter-skinned black. Uh, She wasn't a darker-skinned black. I remember uh, my brother, his first time going to jail. He's in jail now. He's been there most of his life was because he was caught still in water, because the poverty that they experienced at that time, we didn't have water at the house. Um, I just remember all the times that I have to adjust because I'm black, and I wanted to be that black person that you didn't stereotype, so I had to go the extra mile so that you're, I'm not the black person. At least you could see the one black person I remember every time I go into the mall, even in uh, Home Depot, they said, hey, you can carry this with you. I said, nope, I don't want to carry it with you because I don't want people to think I'm shoplifting. And um, I remember the time when I visit Kenya. I remember the one opportunity of freedom that I felt that I can actually walk around and not think about being black for like the first time in my life. And so um, the thing that did encourage me was comments from friends, white, Asian, Hispanic friends, people that had empathy. And and that's something that I was praying for, like the church, people of America, like empathy. Like, can you put yourself in other people's shoes? Can you think about what it means for them to grow up in certain situations. Um, For those who don't know, I've had um, two deaths in my family in the last few months. Uh, Two cousins that were carjacked, two separate situations, and I could easily be mad at them or hate them. But uh, David had a sermon series and a sermon series uh, I think it's a blessing, like God knew why he told you to preach the sermon series, is that I can have empathy for that person that killed my cousin so brutally and shot him in the head and posted it on Facebook because I don't know what the person went through. So just my word is just for my Christian brothers and sisters, you know, having empathy for each other, No matter if you're a different race or different culture, you don't even, you know, understand why people are sad or upset. Just have a little empathy, you know, for your brothers and sisters. and, And then be brave enough to talk to people that I can't reach or to tell them how I feel that you can stand up and be a voice for me even though you're not black or you haven't been through my experience or walked in my shoes, uh, but you can be a voice to me, to people that you're around. Um, Lastly, I just think about my daughters. You know, I have a sister who's so smart. Uh, She's way smarter than me. But she didn't have an opportunity to go to college, not just because she didn't do certain things. She wasn't allowed to go to college in Memphis. Um, she's much older than me, and I had that opportunity. And I'm hopeful that my daughters will have more opportunities, but I'm more hopeful that she will grow, grow up in a world where people can see her, see them for who they are, and have empathy for them, and think about that before they stereotype. Thanks
7: uh When I first heard about Ferguson, I had a lot of thoughts um, you know a lot on whiteness, blackness, Ferguson, what all that means um I can't even begin to get into that in two minutes. Um, and I'm happy to talk about those things uh, afterwards if you want to try it. But instead, um, what I thought I would do with my couple minutes was just um, talk about you know, the criminal justice system generally. As, as many of you know, um, I'm a law student. so I'm currently sur- and surrounded by, always thinking about, um, and just grappling with the law and, and what it means. Um, so when the grand jury determination uh, came out, uh, my mind sort of naturally came to two things, thinking about both these legal processes and, and second, the legal history, both of which have kind of been mentioned. Um, With respect to the processes, as many mentioned, uh, I was, to some extent, unsurprised, but another part of me was actually radically shocked. Um, It's very uh, very unsurprising that, you know, given the brokenness of our criminal justice system that we let another young black man fall by the wayside i don't don't think that's anyone here surprised by that um but what was surprising and shocking to me was the way that it the way that it happened i think fundamentally two things in particular stand out first uh, as i'm sure many of you read over the week a grand jury nearly never doesn't reach an indictment in 2010 less than a hundredth of a percent of cases that were brought before a grand jury a federal grand jury didn't reach an indictment. The second thing, said a grand jury is essentially a forum for the prosecutor to give their evidence, not for the defense. Yet in this case, Officer Wilson was allowed to testify for over four hours. It's radically, fundamentally wrong. When I thought about legal history, as Pastor David mentioned, I had actually um, just days before uh, read the entire Judge Scott decision again. Um, and Judd Scott, as he mentioned, took place radically close and remarkably close to where Ferguson was. Uh, Judd Scott, you know, was a slave who was brought from Missouri, which is a slave state, to Illinois and Minnesota, which were free state and territory respectively, um, and then brought back years later to Missouri. And those, those years abroad, or in, uh, not abroad, but in, a, in free states, should have freed Judd Scott, but he systematically and in this very particular and invidious way, wasn't freed. Supreme Court held that Judge Scott didn't have the standing to sue. In other words, that he couldn't even legally bring a case because he couldn't be considered a citizen of the U.S. Through these procedural mechanics, Judge Scott, like Michael Brown, was systematically denied just these very basic, personal, constitutional rights. He essentially, in other words, was not even treated as a person. Over 150 years later, the criminal justice system still reflects all that it stands for and purports to protect, and all that many, when they look at me, think that I represent, perhaps rightfully in their eyes so, once again, just dehumanize a black life. Dehumanized it. So when I sat in my bed that night with just a very heavy, saddened heart, um, I just sent my prayers up to the Lord. I said, Lord, send Michael Brown's family, send Ferguson, send our country, Lord, send us, send us your mercy, Father. Help us um, as the body of Christ committed to being reconciled to you god and and to each other as the diverse church, um, just work piece by piece, father to to rehumanize um, all of the life that the structures of American criminal justice system have degraded and destroyed.
8: Um, So I was uh, anxious uh, the entire day about which way the verdict would go and the implications of either result. Um, And I had a myriad of different emotions. Um, I was very angry. Um, I was uh, very sad. Um, In some ways, there was a numbness. Um, And then initially upon hearing the verdict like um, Edith, I felt uh, just very sick and nauseous. And wanted to throw up. But mostly I was appalled. (laughs) I was appalled that before an international stage. Our country would air the dirty laundry of its racist venom. And its unjust legal system. But later I was proud of Ferguson. Stay with me. I was proud of Ferguson for displaying itself just as it is in its broken state. I was proud of it because suddenly I remembered Emmett Till, the 14-year-old who was sent south to Mississippi. His mother sent him um, to spend the summer with his family in 1955. His mother sent him down in a bus, but he came back in a box because he whistled at a white woman. He came back in a box with a bullet in his head, a gouged out eye, a smashed forehead and a swollen body from floating in the river for three days. His mother, Mamie Till, insisted on an open casket funeral so the nation could see the woundedness of her son and her people. There were those in the pre-civil rights days that said, what is wrong with those black people? We set them free. What is the problem now? Those wounds, Mamie Till answered that question by bearing her wounds before the nation. Those wounds were deepened when his killers, like Michael Brown's killer, they were also not charged in the murder of a black boy. This is one of the events that sparked the civil rights movement. It began a great change in this nation. And so thank you, Ferguson. For bearing the injustice of our legal system before an international stage. Thank you, Ferguson, for bearing the brokenness of your town. As a picture for all to see with their own eyes the realities of a supposedly post racial America. Your honest depiction of yourself has mobilized bands of people across this nation to protest, to march, to demonstrate, to boycott Black Friday and to enter conversations about race in this country, in this Kairos moment.
0: Uh, I'd like to ask that you just take a minute to thank these folks for telling the truth to us this morning. It's a huge honor to get to be a pastor of a church that is willing and interested in uh, telling the truth. I feel very thankful uh, to each of you for that. I have a few more minutes, uh, and then we're going to spend some time worshiping together. When the exiles uh, reached Babylon, they wanted to know what they were supposed to do. This was uncharted territory for them. This was a traumatic event. The king was deposed. They'd been sent from the only land they had ever known. And now the temple was destroyed. And one of the fundamental questions that Ezekiel is wrestling with in his book is, what do we do now? What do they do in this new land? This week I was texting with a friend, And he said uh, in reflection uh, to Ferguson, he said, I'm not doing enough. And I knew what he meant. I I don't agree with him, but I knew what he meant. I feel that. I, I imagine many of us, like the exiles, we want to know what do we do. And The frustrating thing about Ezekiel in this passage is that it doesn't tell us what to do. Our passage instead tells us about the injustice that is being committed. And then it tells us what God will do. Uh, the passage uh, began, the passage, the portion that uh, Kalia read, directed to the shepherds. Uh, the shepherds in that time, in that place, were leaders. They might have been religious leaders, just as often they would have been political leaders. It was language used by Israel, but also surrounding nations, to designate people in authority. And Ezekiel says to these shepherds, to these leaders, to those in power, Ezekiel says, woe to you. Woe to you for what you have done and woe to you for what you have not done. Ezekiel says, you've taken the best for yourself. In verse 4, Ezekiel says, you have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. Implicit here in Ezekiel's language is, this is what people in leadership and power and authority are supposed to do. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. And Ezekiel says, as a result of your unjust rule, the people are scattered. They're wandering. They're being devoured by wild animals. The second half of the chapter is directed to the sheep, the portion that Maggie read in verses 17-31. through 31. And Ezekiel points out something very important to us. He, he shows the sheep, the, the people who are living under this unjust system, he, he shows us that some of those people have taken advantage of the system. they figured out how to play the game. Ezekiel says, you've eaten your fill, then trampled the pasture so others can't eat. You've muddied the waters so others can't drink. You've abused the weak sheep and driven them away. It's not a stretch for us to imagine what he's talking about. And so what will God do about the wicked shepherds and the opportunistic sheep. Verse 23 and 24, Ezekiel speaking on behalf of God, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Ezekiel, of course, is pointing to Jesus, the Messiah anticipated by the exiles and their descendants right up until that surprising night in Bethlehem. But let's look closely at that metaphor of a shepherd. When we do, we begin to see that it's, it's closer to a righteous judge than the gentle shepherd that might be in your mind right now. Because this shepherd, according to Ezekiel, will remove the corrupt leaders. And he will judge those who have benefited themselves through an evil system. This shepherd will return. This righteous judge will come back. How will you respond when he does? When Jesus returns, there will be many, many who greet Him with undescribable joy and celebration. There will be relief and justice. There will be some when Jesus returns like the shepherds, like the leaders in Ezekiel who will be terrified because their opposition to this returning King has been unmistakable. They will run not to Him, but from Him. And then there will be others of us who are like the fat sheep in this passage. And they're like the goats in Jesus' parable in Matthew 25. You remember it? Jesus, the coming judge, separating the sheep and the goats. When the goats have been separated and told their destiny, they they ask this question, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? Many of us this morning know that there is something wrong in our world. We know on some level that the game has been rigged. We know that our nation resembles a democracy to some and a kleptocracy to so many others. But because many of us don't generally feel the wickedness of our society, we are quickly distracted. And so we choose to invest in the small circle of our insulated experience rather than in the lives of the overlooked and the oppressed. Here is the truth according to God's Word. One day, the judge will pronounce sentence on those powerful shepherds who oversaw the unjust system as well as on those who quietly benefited from it. I'm glad you can say amen because I can't. Which group do you fall within? If you're unsure, imagine for a moment, if you can, that Jesus returns this afternoon. Imagine the realization that the good shepherd and the righteous judge has come to make all things right and all things new. What would you feel? Would you run to greet this shepherd and this judge, knowing that your salvation and your vindication had arrived? Would you run the other way, knowing that your day of hollow and wicked rule had come to an end? Or would you stand frozen in uncertainty, unsure of what the Messiah's return means for someone as middle of the road as you, as under the radar as you, as inconspicuous as you, as me? as much as I want to know what to do in the aftermath of Ferguson, as much as the exiles wanted to know what to do in the aftermath of their desolation, Ezekiel is more interested in what God will do. So what does God do? In the face of such evil, God sends to us a shepherd, a servant, a prince. God sends to us his only son. And the trajectory of Jesus' life makes it very clear where he would stand on the streets of Ferguson. His motives are questioned and his reputation is slandered. His body is dehumanized so that his execution can be justified. He dies in the afternoon sun, a spectacle meant to remind the onlookers of who holds the power. In life, he is marginalized, and in death, he is brutalized. Are we talking about Michael Brown or Jesus? Yes. To both. Are we talking about the 12-year-old Tamir Brown? Or are we talking about Jesus? Yes. Are we talking about John Crawford shot down in a Walmart? Or are we talking about Jesus? Yes. Yeah. Are we talking about Marissa Alexander? Imprisoned for firing a warning shot and an abusive husband yet unprotected by the very same law that shielded George Zimmerman? Or are we talking about Jesus? Yes. Because this is what God's salvation looks like. We start with what God does. And because of what God does through Jesus and because of how God does it through a broken and a bruised body. We have to look at the black and the brown lives that are continually being broken and bruised. Not in spite of how our society works, but precisely because of how our society works. To paraphrase tanahasi Coates, a society structured around the dehumanization of black and brown people is having its intended effect. And Jesus, the Bible makes very, very clear, stands with those on the receiving end of our society's violence. Where do you stand? How will you receive the returning King? Will you run to Him? Your day of salvation at hand? Will you run the other way knowing that you've finally been exposed? Or will you stand frozen in the middle? Aware finally of your complicity in a system, in a society, bent on taking and stealing people's lives. Where do you stand? I'm not going to wrap this up. There's no neat conclusion to our time together today. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up now. Um, Esther and the team have put some good work and prayer into leading us and they will continue to do so. Uh, But this morning I want to push you a little bit. We don't wrap up neatly today because all we've done is talked about ongoing reality today. It so happens that it bubbled up in a particular way that was unmistakable even for the most clueless among us. But all we're talking about this morning is an ongoing reality. And So we step back into it when we leave this place. Where do you stand? And I want to ask you and push you to take this time of worship to wrestle hard with that question. Because Jesus is coming back. Amen? One day... If the Bible is true, if the gospel is good news, one day every single one of us will stand before the good shepherd and the righteous judge. Will you run to him? Will you run from him? There are these moments, there are these gifts in time where you and I can evaluate our lives. How are we responding to the radical gospel of Jesus Christ? This is one of those moments. Are you hearing me? So, we're going to worship. Dennis, myself, Pastor Michelle, we're going to be available to pray for you during this time. The cross is open. I want you to consider the cross and the space around it an altar this morning, a sacred and holy place. Amen? Some of you need to run to the cross this morning. If Jesus were to show up this morning, you would run to him because you would know your salvation was at hand. Your liberation was here. So maybe you can run to the cross today. You can be angry there. You can be mad there. You can be confused there. You can be frustrated there. Pastor Michelle has reminded us our Savior knows every one of the emotions present in us today. Others of you could use this time to repent. Maybe for the very, very first time, say, I I want to be someone who is running in the direction of, of, of grace and mercy and justice as embodied by Jesus Christ. Others of us are maybe aware of our own complicity in a system that is destroying people's lives. Repent. Repent. So please stand and let's pray together. And now we ask, Lord Jesus Christ, that you make this a safe and holy place. We ask that we would bring the range of our thoughts and emotions and questions and experiences to this moment of worship. We pray, Spirit of the living God, that you would speak truth to us. We pray that whatever it is we are thinking or feeling, that the cross of Jesus Christ would always be central, not abstract, not theoretical, but as ground zero to the suffering and the oppression of our world. We think of the cross of Jesus Christ. We think of that that bloodied street in Ferguson. This is where Jesus is. This is where Jesus stands today. So lead us now, Holy Spirit, into your presence. Give us courage to turn around. Give us courage to run to you, even those of us who feel angry and tired and cynical. With
7: my soul, with my soul, it is well. It is well with my soul.
0: Uh, I'd like to ask us to thank uh, again those who shared testimonies and our worship team for leading us so well into tender waters today. Uh, my thanks to you, church, for uh, wanting this to be normal. I appreciate that very, very much. I'm um, actually going to, uh, just as we're standing, we're going to pass the offering plate and uh, receive the offering this morning because I forgot to do it earlier. Uh, this is the last Sunday in the month to give toward our giving goals in November. Uh, so if you can, I ask you to please give generously. Um, So here's how we're going to end. I want you to to listen to this closely, please. Um, If it's your time to go, I'm going to ask you to leave quietly and the ushers can help us with that, keeping those doors closed. You can say hi and greet people in the lobby. Uh, The worship team is going to continue to lead us in worship for a few minutes. There's no hurry unless you're a parent, in which case there is a hurry. Go get your child. But for the rest of us, uh, stay for a moment, ask for prayer. Um, how about, think about it this way. Uh, don't leave today without knowing that when Jesus returns, you will be running to him. Is that, a good, is that a good way to think about it? Don't leave this space, don't leave this space until you know, I could run, I could run, I could run to greet and welcome my Savior. Don't leave this space until you can say that with confidence. So I'm going to pronounce the benediction over you. Uh, if you've not given your tithes or offerings or your welcome card, you can do it on your way out. Ushers, please help me out. Keep those doors closed. The rest of you, if you do leave, please leave very quietly. I invite as many of you uh, who want to to stay for a few more minutes. And so now, Holy Spirit of the living God, we thank you for answering our prayers. Thank you for meeting us. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for convicting us. Thank you for reminding us of what is true and good and right, even when it's hard. So we thank you for answering our prayers. And now, our Spirit, continue to move, continue to speak, um, and send. Send us out into um, the reality of our world, as people who know where history is going. And so help us to, lead, to live together as a people who show our world what the future is going to look like. In Jesus' name, amen. Stay and pray, stay in worship, or go quietly in peace.